In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? I do hope you're okay. I'm running on empty. I've not had a lot of sleep and I've just heard an episode where I use the word typhoon when I meant to say tornado. And I didn't just use it once. I used it four times. So apologies for that. It shows how long ago it was when I recorded that episode. But what I was trying to tell you was that on holiday, there had been a tornado, not a typhoon. So yes, I, you know, when you're in your head, you think you're saying a word, but it turns out something completely different comes out of your mouth. I do That happens with me when I'm tired and when just a bit frazzled and thinking of different things. Clearly, that's what happened that time. So, yes, apologies for being a dimwit, but never mind. You can't have everything. But what you can have are some brilliant books. Oh, my goodness, I've got some great books to talk to you about this week. Very exciting. What are the books? We have got The Land of Lost Things by John Connolly. And John is coming on to talk to us about that book. Then we've got Myrtle by G.T. Carber. You might have heard of Wordle, but have you heard of Myrtle? Brilliant murder mystery logic puzzles. And G.T. Carber's very kindly coming on to talk to us about that, but that's exciting as well. Then we've got a review of You'd Look Better as a Ghost by Joanna Wallace. Need to talk to you about that book. Then The Light Seekers by Femi Kiyodi. And then The Murmurs by Michael J. Malone. Some great books. It's very exciting. Let's get started straight away. So the first book, The Land of Lost Things. Let me jump into this. Here's the blurb. Phoebe, an eight-year-old girl, lies comatose following a car accident. She's a body without a spirit, a stolen child. Her mother can only sit by her bedside and read aloud to her the fairy stories she loves in the hope they might summon her back to this world. But it is hard to keep faith. So very hard. Now, an old house on the hospital grounds, a property connected to a book written by a vanished author, is calling her mother. Something wants her to enter and to journey to a land coloured by the memories of her childhood and the folklore beloved of her father, to a land of witches and dryads, giants and mandrakes, to a land where old enemies are watching and waiting. 
Wow. What an extraordinary, brilliant book this is. And let's talk to John now. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today the one and only John Connolly, whose latest truly incredible book is called The Land of Lost Things. John, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Philippa. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Can we just start with you giving us a little summary of this fabulous book? It's about a young single mother named Ceres, whose daughter is hit by a car when Ceres lets go of her hand very briefly as she's crossing the street. And the daughter, Phoebe, is left unresponsive. And and so Ceres is doing this pilgrimage to her daughter's bedside and she's reading to her. And gradually she begins to fracture the strain of dealing with this, with her daughter's illness, with the guilt of it. It causes something to break. She just can't do it anymore. And she retreats into a world of that's really influenced by the folk tales and fairy tales and the folklore that she loved as a child. And it's a world that I think has a physical and a psychological reality to it. And she brings all of her fears and all of her concerns and all of her what she perceives as her failings into this. And she tries to come to an, an understanding or an accommodation with what has happened to her daughter through these stories and these myths. It's felt to me a very emotional book. Was it emotional to write? Yeah, these are two. It's it's 17 years. It kind of fought in the same universe as the Book of Lost Things, which I published 17 years ago, and was very much a book about my own childhood. And this is a book about being a parent. I'm I'm now in that stage of my life where I suddenly become the responsible adult of the womb, in that I have two <laughs> grown-up sons who are living away from home who I worry about, and I have a mother who is 90 who I worry about. And I seem to be on a kind of perpetual low-level hum of worry. And I think it's a stage that we reach in life where where we become parents both to our children and to our parents. And so I go to bed in the evening, although I have a that do not disturb thing on my phone. Nevertheless, if, if, if the phone rings, it will be a problem with, with one or other side. And it's just a stage that we reach. And, and so if that first book was about childhood, then this is a book about parenthood. And, and I, I was more interested in exploring motherhood than, than fatherhood, because I think it's a, it's a different bond. And I see how my wife deals with the children and how she deals with her mother. And it, it is just slightly different. And, and it seemed to me more emotionally interesting to, to explore the things that were concerning me in that way than directly. And also it's a way of approaching the subject slightly at an angle. You know, if I were to, I didn't want to write about myself in that way, but I did want to write about the things that, that, were, that were happening in my life at the moment. And this allowed me to, to come at it from a slightly different, yeah, a slightly different approach, I think. Was it cathartic in a way to write? Oh, no, no, it really is. I don't think it really works that way. Uh, no, it doesn't. It, it's it's more like lancing a boil in a way. It it, it allows you to to I suppose to explore things that that sometimes even even exploring them feels a little bit guilt inducing. You shouldn't. There's part of you that feels you shouldn't be frustrated with your ninety year old mother. You shouldn't. You you should feel willing unconditionally to give up your time and, and your mental energy and your emotional reserves in favor of these people that you love. But you're only human. Mm. And there will be times when you do get frustrated and there will be times when you just think, can everybody leave me alone for an hour so I can get stuff done? And, and these are all natural human things. We're not saints. Mm. And, yeah. and we will all, when the people that we love leave us, we will be left with guilt. We will always feel that we could have done more. It's just the nature of the thing. But you, you're human and you're trying to get along as best you possibly can. And so it was just, the books are often a way of, of exploring themes that, that are of interest to me. But, but I'm not sure I've ever come out of them feeling very much better. But, and I suppose the thing for readers is that they read, it's, people 
don't want sympathy. It's sympathy is a very easy emotion to give, to to offer, and we sound I'm really sorry. It's almost like a road thing. You do it when you bump into someone in the supermarket. It's, those, those, it's a very easy word to use. Understanding is what people want. People want to feel that, that they are understood. And I think there are moments in, in fiction when you're reading a book, if you're a reader, where you will think to yourself, I, I thought that was just me or I would never have been able to frame it in those terms. Or more interestingly, because that's, that's, only, that's quite a shallow offering from reading. Those moments where you think, actually, I, I had... I now see the world in a completely different way. I now look at how other people endure things because we don't always want to look for people who are like us. We don't always want to be confirmed in our own views. And increasingly, but increasingly, obviously, the world is tending in that direction where you just tend to have two large groups of people shouting at each other and a group of people in the middle who are just trying to get on with things as best they can. But I think I used to, I was doing an interview a little while back and in a, in a rare moment of lucidity, I remember describing books as kind of empathy machines. They are fiction as a way of, of exploring the consciousness of others and inhabiting the consciousness of others in a way that film doesn't do it in quite the same way. Music does it in a very interesting way, but in a, in a different way. And I, I'm interested in that research that's been going on where they've been looking at young people who read and they're trying to decide, are they more compassionate because they're interested in fiction? In other words, are people who are more inclined to be compassionate, more willing to get involved in the narrative? Because to do that requires you to sacrifice a little bit of yourself, to lose yourself in a book. You need to kind of set aside something of your own identity. Or is it the fact that the more fiction you read, the more compassionate you become? And the truth probably lies somewhere in between the two, I think, as, a, as in most truths. And so the, the book, in, in a way, the, the Book of Lost Things and the Land of Lost Things have, have, have been ways of exploring those ideas. What, what do we get from fiction? What does fiction offer us? What do, why are these fairy tales and folk tales in particular, why are, they, why are they so potent even later in life? Why do they resonate with us? And yeah, so you, you, you get to explore them through these interesting landscapes. They're, they're, it's a very good carrier genre because A, some writers get annoyed when, 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 Someone says this book, but I think we are creatures of narrative. We tend to frame ourselves in terms of stories. You meet somebody, you go, what were you doing? Or what happened yesterday? Or you, and we're quite good at self-editing. Unless you're a complete lunatic, you don't say, well, I got up and had an egg. But yeah, it took a while for the egg to boil because the person's already drifting away from you. You think, yeah, looking forward to seeing you again. We're quite good at compiling stories and editing stories. And so I think when you, one of the things, genre fiction tends to prize story. It tends to put a lot of emphasis on the fact that there is a story, that there is a narrative that one can follow. And in the past, sometimes that then has, tends to be equated, well, people who write, who are interested in story aren't as interested in language or character. And that's simply not the case. It's actually just that the, the balance is slightly different. I, I love literary fiction. I've written literary fiction. In a piece of literary fiction, story is, is subsidiary to character and language. We don't want to read a piece of literary fiction that's badly written. That by definition, that's not a piece of literary fiction. Genre fiction in general, character and story, I think. But you can all, for me, I, I've always prized how the thing is said. And in fact, The Land of Lost Things is, puts that front and foremost because it's a, it's a book also that's fascinated with words and language. And I think if you're a writer, it's a bit like being an architect or a builder. You should be fascinated by bricks and stones because they're essentially the things that form the edifice. And so each chapter heading is, is an odd word, is a strange word, is a word that maybe has fallen out of use, but is perfect in itself. 
and is a perfect expression of the theme of each chapter because I love words. And I'm not one of those writers who who gets annoyed. I was doing an event with a writer of whom I'm very fond. And he said he had been reading a book and he got quite annoyed because he had to read through a dictionary occasionally. And there's a little part of me that thinks, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't it a poor book that you don't learn anything new from? And he says, he said, well, that takes me out of the narrative. And I don't think it does. I mean, I think an error in a book takes you out of the narrative. But to look up a book, a word, and then think, well, actually, that's really interesting. That is the perfect word. That's the right word to use. And it almost confirms your faith in the writer. Because if the writer has put that much care into that word that you had to look up, the others are probably okay too. The the edifice is going to stand. It's very interesting because I usually pick up a book and jump into a book because I want to escape from what's going on. And yet a book that really stays with me is something that has sort of met me in my worries and has helped me process what I'm going through, which is what I very much got from The Land of Lost Things. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I like the point of connection. I also, a bit like you don't always want to be eating caviar. I don't want to eat caviar at all. I don't like fish. But there, there's nothing wrong as well with it, with picking up a book that gets you on on your flight to play at Alinglais without noticing the jackass beside you who's chewing crisps all the time. There's, we, we, we're very good readers. I think we, people sometimes underestimate readers. Readers are very Catholic with a small C. So, you know, there, I mean, there will be people who will only read books with unicorns in them. That's their thing. They're unicorn people. And I, I mean, people who will only read private eye novels. That's all they want to read. They're kind of unusual. Most of us will pick up, we'll be in the mood to read, you know, a thriller because we're getting on a plane or we've just had a hard day and our mental capacities aren't really up to doing anything more. But then we might think, actually, that book on the Booker long list looks kind of interesting and I'll I'll give that a try. I know there's a nonfiction book. I've just finished Cathy Unsworth's book about goth. You know, suddenly there are three books on goth out this year. I have this vision of all of these 50-year-old people in black overcoats emerging, blinking into the sunlight, thinking our time has come at last. Three books on goth in the space about three months. But, you know, that that I'm, I pick and choose according to my mood. But there will be times, yeah, when you... you with, I think it's lovely if you're a reader. The right book often finds... It, not always, but often it will find its way into you, into your hands at the right time. Or occasionally you'll get a book and you'll see the qualities of it, but it won't necessarily be the right time to read it. But then later you might return to it or later you might think, actually, that book I set aside now may be the time for that book. And part of that is not magic or anything. It's just that function that for many of us who read a lot, we're naturally going to have a kind of awareness of the novels that are around us or the fiction that's available to us. And maybe we're quite good um, at moving towards it when we need it at the right time. Perhaps. The solace of a book. Well, let's ask you to read us a little bit from the book. You're going to read us the first page of The Land of Lost Things, John. Twice upon a time, for that is how some stories should continue, there was a mother whose daughter was stolen from her. Oh, she could still see the girl. She could touch her skin and brush her hair. She could watch the slow rise and fall of her chest. And if she placed her hand upon the child's breast, she could feel the beating of her heart. But the child was silent and her eyes remained closed. Tubes helped her to breathe and tubes kept her fed. But for the mother, it was as though the essence of the one she loved was elsewhere. And the figure in the bed was a shell, a mannequin, waiting for a disembodied soul to return and animate it. In the beginning, the mother believed that her daughter was still present, sleeping, and that by the sound of a beloved voice telling stories and sharing news, 
she might be induced to wake. But as the days became weeks and the weeks became months, it grew harder and harder for the mother to keep faith in the imminence of her daughter. And so she grew to fear that everything that was her child, all that gave her meaning, her conversation, her laughter, even her crying might never come back and she would be left entirely bereft. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Did did the characters haunt you after you'd finished writing the book? No spoilers, but did they sort of stay in your mind? Yes, I think I think they did. Yeah, I'm quite careful about what I, what I will say. Yeah, I mean, they're so. It's it's. I put a lot into every book that I write because I feel that the worst thing a writer can do is waste a reader's time. It's it's a really sinful thing to do, and so I always try to do the the best that I can. And also, I, I don't want to spend two, year, two years or more sometimes. I mean, key was a process that went on for almost a decade, invested in a book that I'm not passionate about, that doesn't speak to me in some way. But it probably is the case now that after 25 years of writing the Parker books, I, I love writing about that character and, and I put a lot of myself in him and I get to explore the world through him. That's a muscle that I know how to use in a way. I have been writing these books for so that I, I can I kind of slip into that mode. But to move on to, to a mother who's put into the worst situation possible, which your nightmare situation as a parent, that something happens to your child and that you feel, and you'll always feel responsible. You'll always look at where you might have gone wrong, but, but series can pinpoint the moment. This moment where her child, she let her child's hand just slip barely as they were crossing the road. And every parent has done it. And 99 times out of 100, it's fine. Or more than that, 999 times out of 1,000. And it's this one occasion where, where it goes horribly wrong. And so, and I, as a parent, I've had that experience of sitting outside an operating theater while my child was being operated on. You know, where it, that happens. You, you just, there's a, it's an accident. And for some parents, it's, a, it's something that goes on for years. If you have a child that's ill, you will do those pilgrimages and you will have long, uncomfortable nights in the hospital by your child's bed. And so you're tapping into something that's very primal, I think. And so I put a lot of myself into, even though it's a, it's a mother rather than a father, there's a, there's a lot of myself in her. And a lot of what I've, I suppose I've observed about Jenny and my other half as well, and how she, like I said when I earlier, is pet fathers and mothers deal with these things differently. And, but it's not that they're, the depth of them is, it's just a different way of dealing with things. And you know, that's the forever argument that, you know, Jenny or my mum will say something and I'll go, well, let's all sort that out. They go, no, don't, don't want to, don't just yeah, listen. But it's an instinctive, the male, odd male thing is that you want to, that if there's a practical way that this can be solved, if I can do something, I'll, I'll do it. I, and we're just simply, we're kind of hardwired that way. We're, we're made a little bit that way. We should listen better. But instead we go trooping off and go looking for the toolkit. Well, I don't because I'm useless. I'll go looking for a phone book or I look for a context book to call a plumber or a roofer because I'm not able to do it. But I'll try and, and solve the problem. It's a, I find that aspect, one of the themes that's gone through a lot of my books is, is male friendship and male intimacy. Because I've often felt that women, women don't, necessarily understand the depth and profundity of male friendship because so much of it is is unspoken and tends to come about by by action and by gesture in a way rather than rather than long periods of sharing intimacies but that doesn't mean that it is any less deeply felt and i think that was why i wrote he i wrote a book called he a few years back which was about the relationship between stan laurel and oliver hardy because it spoke to me in that way. It was a love story between two men who had never 
would never in their lives have told each other how much they cared. But in everything that they did, they showed only solicitude and concern for the other. And so in, in moving into them to, to look at it from a, a mother-daughter relationship was, was kind of interesting to me. It was a different way of, of looking at intimacy and, and, and questioning myself, I suppose, and how I approach these issues. Well, John, to, it's wrong to move from the very serious to the very flippant. No, but not at all. I'm, I'm going to because we come to the final question, which is the most crucial one on this podcast. <laughs> and the question, John, is what biscuit was powering the writing of the Land of Lost Things? Oh, biscuit! I've I'm not really. I, I've tried to to wipe out a sweet tooth, so I don't really have it quite as much as I used to. We have a we have Jacob's fig rolls in Ireland, which I really really like. And occasionally I don't feel, because they feel like I'm eating something that might possibly at one point have been healthy. And therefore <laughs> it's got fig in it of some form and fig must be good for you. So I can have a fig roll and not feel hugely guilty about it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's just great. It's wonderful to talk to you and hear more about the land of lost things. John Connolly, thank you so much. Philip, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. 
And let me read you the blurb on this one. Detective Logico is back on the scene to investigate murders most foul in Myrtle more killer puzzles. Follow the clues and join Logico to uncover the buried secrets of the Violet Isles, solve the riddles of an ancient scholar and catch the culprit using the power of deduction. Together you're on earth the dark truth beneath each murder and crack the code that can only be decrypted once you've solved them all. Packed with perplexing puzzles, codes and maps, this is the ultimate casebook for the armchair detective in anyone. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was young, I used to go on holiday with the family and I would have a puzzle book. And in those puzzle books would be, you get them occasionally like a, a table with squares and you'd hear that Joe has an apple in the lounge. And so you'd know to tick which boxes relate to that. And eventually it, it, you're trying to work out who had an orange in the kitchen or something like that. And I used to love them. You'd have to really focus on them. And then, of course, Wordle came out and I was addicted to that for a while until it made me very cross and then I stopped being addicted to it. But Wordle is like a, a murder version it's brilliant. It takes some focusing and some concentration, I have to say, but I love that. And with my daughter going away to university, I need something that when I can't settle in a book because my head's just everywhere thinking and worrying about her, that I can just turn to this and just go through it and immerse myself in it. And the great thing is that there are different sort of levels of puzzles. So there are the easier ones and the harder ones, which are, personally for me is great. I just I just love the idea. It's so original. And that's what we need, something different. But anyway, I've waffled. Let's talk to JT Carver now. It is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, GT Carver, the author of Myrtle. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Can we start with you just summarizing this gem of a book for us? Yeah, Myrtle is a collection of murder mystery logic puzzles. I like to say that they're family friendly, except for the murders. And <laughs> you, I also try to tell everybody that anybody can learn to solve them. It's not like sometimes when you pick up a puzzle book and they're just inscrutable, you know, it's like a a painting of a room when it's solved the crime and you're just like, I have no idea what... I'm doing. And that's like something that I love a lot of different mysteries, but sometimes people are very, uh, you know, nervous that they won't be able to solve them. So I, I like to say that it's approachable for beginners and then the book gets more challenging as you go. But it's also a story about uh, a deductive getting his footing and solving his first hundred cases. Uh, canonically, I don't think they are his first cases, but they are like his first big set of mysteries. So it both has a bunch of one-off puzzles and it's also kind of a narrative. I hope that's a good explanation. It's a little hard to talk about because it's not quite a novel. It's not quite a, it's not like a book of Sudokus. So sometimes I get a little tongue-tied trying to describe it. No, I think that's a perfect explanation. When you got the name for it, obviously with all the emphasis on Wordle recently and then murder mysteries. Was that right. like solving a logic problem on its own? They were like, yes, that's the name. Yes, yes, it was. Because originally I had been working on it for a little bit because originally I made it like on a napkin for a friend at a coffee shop and because I was procrastinating. So I made the first one just scribbling it 
to just to send a photo of it to a friend of mine who loves puzzles. And he really liked it, but the very the canonical first one was like wrong. It didn't work. It was like a bad oh, no. <laughs> And so he kind of gave me grief about that. So I went home and I coded up the program that makes them sort of as a way to to get my friend. I was like, if you if you think you're so smart, try solving an infinite number of these puzzles. I've got you now. And for the longest time, it was, I was calling it, like I was trying to figure out a title and they were all so bad. They were like, Deductive Logico's Mini Splendored Murder Mysteries was one of them, <laughs> which really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and it was during this sort of a post-wordle craze where people were coming up with different daily puzzles that you could do and using this similar portmanteau of a word plus puzzle or the old part. To, to designate not just that it was a puzzle, but that it was a daily puzzle too. And a lot of people tell me that Myrtle is not really like some of the other Wordle games. It's not really a guessing game. It's not something where you like guess the who done it and then get multiple tries. Um, so that it was that idea because originally when I was developing developing it as the name Deductive Logico's Mini Splendid Murder Mysteries, it was not a daily puzzle. It was like you had a series of five or six slowly more difficult puzzles, kind of similar to the books. And so it it was a little bit of a of inspiration or whatever, like a flash of insight to not only call it Myrtle, but to make it something that people come back every day. And as a game developer, there's a little, it's a bit of an interesting thing because a lot of people really love the easy puzzles in the book. And I've heard people call them Moorish and that you like just, you race through them and do one after the other. And in games, sometimes that is kind of a, like a dark magic. You don't, some of the worst, most unethical game developers spend all their time trying to come up with games that people can't put down, that monopolize mm -hmm. their lives and then have microtransactions or all the different things that you can sort of take advantage of people. And so one of the things I liked about making it a daily puzzle was that I'm really not asking for too much. Like you can solve the puzzle and then go back to your life. But with the book, it's nice because I think it's a lot easier to set down a book when you start to you, you still want to do the next one, but you like need to go to sleep. I think that's a lot easier on a book than it is on a phone. So <laughs> I hope that the book provides kind of an ethical way to do hundred a hundred puzzles back to back. I mean, the book has had a huge impact. People love it. It's Did wild. you imagine that that would happen? No, not not really. I mean, when I first made the thing, I was going to try to put out different interactive mystery games and stories on my goal was on a weekly basis and Myrtle was like week two's project like I was like I had been developing it for a while but I wanted to release you know a bunch of these things that I because I have a bad habit of not finishing things uh but then I put Myrtle out and then you know within two weeks um a woman Melissa Edwards who's an, a literary agent in New York out of uh operating with the company Stone Song called me and was like I think that we could sell this as a book and I was sort of just, first I kind of thought maybe this was a scam. Because <laughs> this is, they say scammers sort of prey on your hopes and dreams. So I was very nervous and Googled to make sure, okay, yes, she is legitimate. This is a legitimate organization. 
And then when we went, we sold, we went out and I pitched it to a bunch of people. And then we sold it to Courtney Littler at, at St. Martin's Press. And instead of one book, she wanted to have a series of them and each step. And then for it to be, and it's been such a hit in the UK. And every single one of these steps, I kind of like didn't anticipate yeah. and was, to be frank, was content. Uh, beforehand, if I had just made a daily puzzle that people liked, that would have sufficed. If I had made a, <laughs> if I had sold one book, that would have sufficed. And it, it just, it kept going. And I don't know, I'm just trying to enjoy it and take things as they come. And we need to say, so the first book, Myrtle, is already out. And then the next one called More Killer Puzzles is out on the 5th of October in the UK. Is oh, it, it out already in the US or is that... It is coming out tomorrow, actually, in the US. And so this is kind of a nerve-wracking week for me where I sometimes become convinced that this is where it all falls apart. <laughs> this is the House of Cards moment. <laughs> it's been a while, though, with the like different different territories. I mean, we both speak English. I can, you know, talk to people and stuff. But sometimes, because we've sold into a bunch of different languages, and I, I just saw a day or two ago the Norwegian edition of the book, and I had never seen it before. Just someone posted it on social media. It's It's sort of wild to see it out there all around the world. Are the covers very different? The only, most of the covers so far have been based around the original American design, but there is a great cover. I don't have a copy of it with me yet, but there's a great cover out of Korea that is very different. And I, I think it's, it's really exciting when the cover is very different. It's a different look and just because I get to see like a whole new, it feels like an alternate universe version of it. So... It's really cool, too. It has, like, the, the Korean one has an orange spot color throughout the book. So it's sort of like a, it feels like a full-color book, even though it's just the extra orange. But it's just great to see what different people are able to bring to it and change. And and the UK people have been, have been so great about the marketing of the book, which sounds like a business thing, but is really a creative thing. They've They've been really great at finding ways to bring Deductive Logico and the, the Myrtle universe into the real world. And they had uh, Logico's desk at Waterstones Piccadilly so people could go sit at it and solve a puzzle. And it's just such a great way to not just sell the book, but to provide an experience even for people who have already purchased the book, maybe. Yeah. And yeah. so it, oh, it was, fantastic. I don't know, it's been wonderful. And you've got another book coming out next year as well. So if people get through even more killer puzzles, they they don't need to worry. Right, right, yeah. And, and hopefully, hopefully they'll be coming out until the sun explodes. That's that's my dream. They <laughs> it's wild because I just finished copy edits on the third book, like a week ago. So it's the overlapping timelines are very surreal you'll be working on one and and one is out or you're preparing another one so it's 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 wild though too you say if people have finished by then some people like write me a day after the book comes out and are like i finished it i'm like you you should slow down it took me a while to write that please take your time <laughs> I have a, a writer, that an Australian writer that I really like named Max Berry, who writes these social satire books. 
he said that I'm paraphrasing here, but that the worst part of being a writer is when you you send your book to your grandmom and then the next day she calls and says, it was great. When's the next one? <laughs> Grandmom, I spent so much time on that. <laughs> and for your books to get, for someone to get through them in a day. I know. My I know. goodness, they must be huge fans of deductive logico to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny too, because with the first one, there was a, in the first edition of it, there was a typo or there was a missing clue on the like puzzle 61, I think. And I was so nervous when it was identified at first because it's like to find out that there's like a book is every writer's worst nightmare. But we were able to post the extra clue on the website and get it fixed really quickly in the book. But it was shocking to me that someone discovered it almost immediately after it came out. I was expecting number 61 to take several, several weeks for someone to get to that. But no, people really attack them. Do you dream of myrtles in your in your sleep? Well, that's I definitely dream about myrtle related stress. <laughs> it's an interesting thing for me in myrtle because I send the puzzles to people for testing, and to me, I don't. It's not that I don't enjoy doing them, but it, it's so bundled up for me with the stress of them being right and and them not having mistakes in them. That sometimes it's really difficult for me to just enjoy one without thinking about the things that I can fix on them. So there's been a lot of people who have been very encouraging and supportive in testing. So I'll send them the puzzles ahead of time when we're working on it. And the fans of the book love doing them. So it's always weird because I'm always like, hey, would you be willing to maybe test another four or five puzzles if it's not too much work? And every time they're like, that sounds great. That's the most amazing thing ever. And it's still a little surreal to me because I feel very humbled by people's excitement for it. Okay, so if someone has never done a Myrtle before, what do they need to know when they start? <sighs> if they've never done one before, if you've done a logic puzzle before, then you're probably going to be fine. You probably sort of already know how they work. And you'll be able to understand the different new wrinkles and twists in these. If you've never done a logic puzzle before, I, I guess the only thing I would say is to read there's a how to solve at the beginning of the book. And I think that it, it lays it out pretty well. And I also encourage people just to find a friend and ask them how to, if they're stuck on something, because oftentimes the things you get stuck on aren't really things that are like objectively hard. They're things that your brain has just papered over in reading the puzzles. Sometimes people mm -hmm. skip the word not in something and they become bamboozled by a puzzle. And so I think a huge thing is just like getting outside perspective. Also, I feel like if I tell people to ask friends, then that's a great way to spread the word about the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Good marketing. It will be yeah. a very different book for book clubs as well because they can help each other and share the information but also discuss the story. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard of book clubs doing it, but that sounds great. I would love to, I should try to encourage that, form little detective clubs <laughs> and work through the, the book together. There's something <laughs> to that. And if someone, the reverse, thinks that they are God's gift to Myrtle and the first book they just zipped through it and absolutely fine, I'm sure they will have already pre-ordered more killer puzzles. But if they haven't, what 
Are there any challenges? Is there anything different that they would expect in this second book? Yeah, there are a bunch of extra extra challenges in the second book. I put in optional math puzzles into the second one because I love math puzzles, but I recognize that most people don't love math. That's not necessarily a universal impulse. So I put uh, a set of math puzzles in the second book, but that they're optional. You don't have to solve them to solve the murders. And I put some some more tricky map puzzles, and there's a fun little DNA matching sequence in this one that I think is is kind of charming. And in Myrtle 2, I would say that the biggest change for Myrtle 1 is that there's more world building in it. It's basically the same difficulty level. I actually think that in some ways the first book might be a little harder in places because one of the things that's very difficult in puzzles is to thread the needle of it being challenging for beginners and yet not overwhelmingly challenging. So I've been trying to tell people that the second one is a great one to start with. And if you like the first one, this one will expand the world. But then for the third book, which is coming out in April, I really tried to kind of put out, pull out all the stops in terms of difficulty and put as many like codes and, and challenges in it as possible. So if you like the first two, that's going to be like the real challenging one of the first set. Don't worry at all. We come to the final question of this podcast, which is the most important one. So please prepare yourself. And that question is, what biscuit was powering the writing of Myrtle? Okay, so I'm trying to think of the cookies that that went into because certainly a lot of a lot of snacks went into this book. But I'm going to have to say that coffee was the biscuit that went into this. <laughs> if, if that, Your caffeine. Yeah, I, I drank too much coffee making this book, and especially the first one. But I should try to incorporate some biscuits into my writing routine. Maybe that would help me. It's a great book. and can't wait for people to get hold of the second one and start doing it and hear all their responses. G.T. Carber, author of Myrtle, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Let's get on with the book reviews as well. So the next one is You'd Look Better as a Ghost by Joanna Wallace. When I just heard the title of this book, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is this is a bit of me. This sounds really good. Dry, acerbic, I don't know, interesting, murder. And yes, it's fiction. Let me read you the blurb on this one. And, and I should add, it wasn't just the title. The book's really good. The book is really good. But let me read you the blurb first. The night after her father's funeral, Claire meets Lucas in a bar. Lucas doesn't know it, but it's not a chance meeting. One thoughtless, mistyped email has put him in the crosshairs of an extremely put-out serial killer. But even before they make eye contact, before Claire lets him buy her a drink, before she takes him home and carves him up into little pieces, something about that night is very wrong. Because someone is watching Claire. Someone who is about to discover her murderous little hobby. The thing is... It's not sensible to tangle with a part-time serial killer, even one who is distracted by attending a weekly bereavement support group and trying to get her art career off the ground. Claire will do anything to keep her secret hidden, not to mention the bodies buried in her garden. Let the games begin. Let's read you the first page. I don't know whether to... I'll read the then. 
Here we go then. Half the people crammed into the hall have left their umbrellas at the back by the door. The other half have closed their umbrellas and placed them at their feet. The people who left them by the door are settling into their seats, distracted. How do they know their out-of-sight umbrellas are safe, won't be stolen or forgotten? Maybe they shouldn't have left them at the door. Maybe they should have kept their umbrellas with them. This book is utterly brilliant. I really enjoyed it. You know, sometimes you read a book that you think, oh, it's really good, but... And I really enjoyed it, but... There was no but with this. I just loved it. And even though I had stuff going on, head occupied, I could focus on this. Yes, if you're not into laughing about serial killers in a fictional way, not laughing hard, but do you know what I mean? Finding humour in those those uh, rather challenging situations, then it, it isn't a book for you. But it is great. It's fresh. It's different. The writing is superb. The characters are great. It's memorable. I really loved it. I just thought it was great. You'd look better as a ghost. Joanna Wallace. Joanna, you can write. Bravo. Excellent. And now we come on to the next one. Slightly different, more serious, but this is a great book. The Light Seekers. No, not The Light Seekers, just Light Seekers by Femi Kiyodi. Let me read you the blurb on this one. When three students are brutally murdered in a Nigerian university town, their killings and their killers are caught on social media. The world knows who murdered them. What no one knows is why. As the legal trial begins, investigative psychologist Philip Taiwo is contacted by the father of one of the boys desperate for answers to his son's murder. But Philip is an expert in crowd behaviour and violence, not a detective. After travelling to the sleepy town that bore witness to the horror, he soon realises that someone really doesn't want him there and will do anything to prevent him learning the truth. Will he uncover what really happened to the Okriki Three? And let me read you the first few sentences. Well, actually, if I do the source, I think that's a bit full on. I'm going to do like the act one, the why, not the what. Unless I'm mistaken, a riot is about to break out in the departure lounge of the Lagos domestic airport. Someone should at least tell us what's going on. An irate passenger barks into the face of an unruffled airline staff member, spraying her with spit. Good luck with that, I think, from where I sit with my meat pie and Coca-Cola. I'm at a table in the Mr Biggs restaurant opposite the checking counter, a position I carefully chose so I won't be left behind when the delayed aeroplane finally decides to fly to Port Harcourt. Apologies for everything I have mispronounced. What is this book? It's a momentous book. It's a significant book. It's a serious book. It's quite a grown-up book. It's meaty subjects. It's written in a beautiful way. I really enjoyed it. Well, I enjoyed it. Is yeah. It's, I'm glad I read the book. It's profound, and you learn a lot from it as well. Um, it sort of you have your heart in your mouth, worrying about what's going to happen and how it will all end up. But I thought it's yeah, uh, an incredible book. And speaking of incredible books, we come on to the last one, The Murmurs by Michael J. Malone. In fact, Michael has been on this podcast some years ago now. It was very good to have him on. And when I heard he'd written this book, I thought, yes, I need to read this and read it. I did. Let me read you the blurb. On the first morning of her new job at Hartfield House, a care home for the elderly, Annie Jackson wakens from a terrifying dream. 
and when she arrives at the home, she knows that the first old man she meets is going to die. How she knows this is a terrifying mystery, but it is the start of horrifying premonitions, a rekindling of the curse that has trickled through generations of women and her family, a wicked gift known only as the Murmurs. With its reappearance comes an old forgotten fear that is about to grip Annie Jackson, and this time it will never let go. Let me read you the blurb on this one. I'm not going to do the prologue, I'm going to do chapter one. Chapter one, Annie, now. She was underwater, the world reaching her ears through a muffle and gurgle and splash. At first, it was nice, the water just how she liked it. She was on her own, no annoying sibling or parents demanding anything. Then, pressure and a weight on her head, strong, firm, determined pressure. She kicked furiously, screamed, help! But as she opened her mouth, it filled with water, she spat it out, panic sparked bright, increasing her need for oxygen. This is a good book. My goodness, it's something again different, accomplished writing, right on the money. Yeah, really enjoyed it. And those are your books. I've waffled for far too long, but I had to talk to you about them. Let's just have a quick recap. So we had the brilliant book by John Connolly, The Land of Lost Things. Then we had the wonderful Myrtle, More Killer Puzzles is the next book out by G.T. Carber. We had the, oh, brilliant book. See, they're all brilliant books. You Look Better as a Ghost by Joanna Wallace, Light Seekers by Femi Kiyodi and The Murmurs by Michael J. Malone. Those are your books. I'm going to send you on your way. I hope you're OK. I'm sending you big hugs and just hope you're all right. So look after yourselves. And I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.